Hello, and welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about running tabletop role-playing games. Each episode, our guest rolls on the table of topics, and we discuss the result. My name is Chris Salzman. And I'm Andy Rowe. And this week, we're joined by special guest, Greg Teachout. Hi there. Greg, so I think you and I know each other from a couple things. So we have a mutual friend, Steve. That's um, right. Great guy. And then I think we played Rocket League one time together. We did. And then, uh, oddly enough, you've contributed a beautiful cello melody to a recording I made apropos of nothing. But Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. So you're yeah, the well, kind of deep renaissance guy that can just have that in your back pocket. <laughs> like, yeah, I did some casual chamber music for you. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was for your um, your podcast, um, which I'm going to flub the name on, but I really enjoyed it. And it just was a couple episodes long. I think that one was against type. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Two episodes is all we need. Um, mm. Yeah. We just <laughs> thought that that was everything we had to say about humanity. Boom. Done. Close the book. You know? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> that was an excellent podcast. So have you done other other podcasts? Yeah, I did Quill or Be Quilled, uh, which is five episodes deep. Um, it's kind of okay. like The Wire. I felt like yeah. five episodes was perfect five seasons uh okay. same same thing so it's mm-hmm. an author interview podcast so mm-hmm. i just talked to various authors uh about their books that's real authors fun. not like local authors oh okay like well i guess wait. <laughs> <laughs> Who's... yeah i know a lot of local authors that's just a dig in case they listen to this i'm a terrible person please continue yeah, yeah. Uh, most authors i've met are, are really wonderful people but i guess like who's the most the most famous author you've had on <laughs> uh, i had ken Liu, who uh has oh yeah yeah oh, you know him um, I've heard the name. I yeah, guess I yeah. Say. Well, <laughs> yeah. he uh, he's won the Nebula and Hugo and the other one I don't remember the name of because it doesn't matter. But he's the only mm-hmm. guy to win three big sci-fi awards with one book. So that was awesome. What uh, book was that? Uh, that was uh, Paper Menagerie. So it's a okay. short story book. But he also wrote um, oh something really important. God, I hope he doesn't listen to this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's something about kings. You know, kings people like that. The the listenership of this podcast is pretty small, so I think the the cross section between that and the authors you've talked to is going to be <laughs> that's, that's mostly good. non-existent. So I think I think we'll be okay. I, yeah, I, I talked to some other good ones too, but I won't uh, I, I won't belabor that at this point. So Greg, I, I've got to ask though. Uh, so I might have played Rocket League with you years oh. ago. Uh, yes, and I will not ask you to divulge your PlayStation handle on the air here but i wouldn't even under torture so that's good. okay uh does it have a nabokov reference in it it does okay yes i remember you and i think of you from time to time although oh, i don't know you in any way because i every time i'm playing whatever Fortnite and i'm teamed up with like you know gamer bro 420 uh, <laughs> i think <laughs> remember that one time i played with a bunch of random people in rocket league and one of them had a nabokov reference in his name. like well, maybe one day i'll meet that guy again in a random game of Fortnite. and here we are and so here we are so i yeah. feel like it's been a many year journey to this point where i reconnected <laughs> with you so yeah yeah no we're living through destiny right now this is amazing <laughs> So hey, do you want to uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how you started uh, role playing and GMing in particular, and yeah, sure. uh, and what you're up to these days? Yeah, no problem. I uh, so I've always sort of considered people as puppets or pawns, and so <laughs> I thought DMing was or GMing it was a, a great opportunity to make that a little bit more literal. But um, no, I, I started <laughs> playing D and D in high school as a player. But if if I were to get a little bit psychotherapist about it i think this might be a more interesting and and genuine answer emotionally i grew up as a jehovah's witness and uh was exposed to a lot of 
chimera and uh, other bizarre sort of apocalyptic creatures, beautifully drawn in a lot of bizarre pamphleture. And uh, it really captured my imagination. I actually don't think that was the intended takeaway from the Jehovah's Witness. uh, No. (laughs) I almost said propaganda machine, but I'm trying to be nice. But anyhow, I just thought the monsters and demons were awesome and terrifying. And I would say I carry that sensibility with me to this day, which makes me sort of a child in a certain way, because I just love really big monsters. And so I, I got the monstrous compendium, far before I could pronounce Compendium or ever play Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I thought, you know, I'd like to put this to use. Uh, And since I'm not going to be like a a mad scientist or or an evil wizard in real life, next best thing would be to push people around my paper mazes. So (laughs) that's uh, that's basically how it happened. I I started playing uh, under a DM named Andy, who was a certain species that we all know. He's an incredible planner, sort of a wannabe author. I think he actually is an author now, which is cool, but he very much created these invisible corrals for his players to walk through, and I sort of bristled at that, and I chafed, and I wanted more freedom, so as soon as I made uh, my first quote-unquote campaign, it was basically a free-for-all, like, what do you guys want to do? And uh, <laughs> I evolved, but that was yeah. that informed my sensibility, for sure. So who were the players in your first campaign? So, uh, a friend of mine, Tim was one of my first and uh, oldest friends and he uh, is a friend to this day but he was one of the best role players he was the first guy to really lean into using a quote-unquote weird voice at the table which i think is always precedent setting it's like the first person who starts dancing at a party it's like all right all right you just turn things up a notch i appreciate that (laughs) so so yeah so there was of course uh andy himself and uh and tim and me and, and other supernumeraries kind of wandered in and out, but I don't think they deserve specific mention. But Tim would be a gaming stalwart in my career as a DM for many years. So he played in just pretty much everything that you ran? For, for a long time. And then I retired from Dungeons & Dragons for about 17 years. I just, you know, wanted to swish things around in my mind a little bit, really <laughs> yeah. meditate, and uh, come back to the, to the game a little bit stronger, which I did just a couple of years ago. I'm picturing a montage sequence of some sort here. Uh, yeah. Yep, that's that's exactly right. Just rolling D20s over and over like Rocky on the heavy <laughs> yeah. bag. It's getting better it. and better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, until there's just straight 20s. Yeah, so, so I'm back, uh, but in a really weird, broken, kind of sad way. Like, I, ha- I haven't really learned to play 5th uh, edition. I have played it a little bit as a player, but I still use a, a kind of just just broken weird half memory of uh second edition so that's the kind of cutting edge guy that you probably want as a guest on your podcast yeah. <laughs> about dming right yeah well i mean let's be honest like we all read the player's handbook maybe once maybe and kind of just took it from there so yeah. it's, i think it's okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um so are you running a game right now of weird broken second edition uh i was i actually had to move across the state uh due to unforeseen circumstances which makes it sound like maybe I'm running from possible conviction or something. That's not the case. But, um, and hey, don't ask, don't tell. Well, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, th- thank you for understanding. Yeah, so I, I did actually have to desert uh, a, pro- a progress, uh, a campaign that was in progress. But I have, I am a, I'm a DM who's in a lot of people's crosshairs. So I do get, and I'm not trying to brag, this is just reality. I get a lot of private messages like, hey, man, you want to get a game going again? <laughs> uh, so. I have a rep. I'm kind of an outsider artist as a DM. Uh, what I found recently, I think, because D&D is just sort of 
in the air these days, <laughs> part of the zeitgeist and stuff, is mm-hmm. that if you mention out loud that you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, someone's going to be like, oh, I want to play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just sort of like that's that's where we're at right now as a culture, I think. <laughs> yeah, which is, is a shocking left turn from my youth, but it's awesome. So playing and running kind of a second edition-ish type of game, do you play self-consciously old school games or do you, is that not like an aesthetic that you pursue? It's it's yeah it's not it's not I love video games okay and I think the the semi permeable membrane between video games and D and D and the way they have this feedback loop is uh, something one can't ignore certainly and I I can be a sort of obnoxious uh, min maxer and stats guy and I love poker so there's a part of my brain that does like all of that but once I'm DMing I don't mind using diagrams and and spare coins maybe a piece of used tissue uh, to plot out a battlefield but uh i don't necessarily love strict grid based play so I, I i can enjoy it as a player but dming i'm more of a theater of the mind kind of guy and uh i've never really had any complaints about my particular implementation of that but i, I think the loosey-goosiness of of makes people nervous so maybe maybe old school in that sense uh but but certainly not because i love uh the you know a stranger things aesthetic and i just need to have that old basement orange crush swigging kind of feel that's that's not why it's basically because i refuse to learn <laughs> yeah. well you're refreshingly honest with yourself that's, yeah, that's, that's got to be good right <laughs> i think so so um before we get to the heart of the show which is rolling a topic i thought i would try something new and spring it on my co-host chris here oh and ask you guys what if anything, in the last couple weeks, has been on your mind GM-wise? Have you gleaned any GMing-related insights from books you've read or game books you've been perusing or movies you've watched or just um, experiences you've had? I can start if you want, because something's been on my mind. A couple of uh, episodes ago, uh, I forget exactly who it was, but we talked to someone who really liked to GM in the sort of swords and sorcery genre. Mm-hmm. So I have been rereading the Robert Howard's Conan stories. Oh, nice. And written, I think, in the 30s, maybe late 20s. And the thing that has struck me from a GM perspective is the way that Conan's adventures really balance the mundane and the fantastic as far as the obstacles that the protagonist Conan faces. I just read a famous Conan story, The Tower of the Elephant, and... Uh, by way of example, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about the story. The Conan is uh, am going on a very D&D-style adventure. He's breaking into an evil wizard's uh, tower, and it's this fantastic magical tower off on the edge of town. And the obstacles, though, that he faces in that tower are really mundane ones for the most part. They're like just uh, bog-standard human guards... And then after the guards, he has to face down this pack of lions. And then after the lion, just regular lions, not giant ones or anything like that. And after the, after the <laughs> lions, he has to fight a, a slightly large spider, not even like a giant one exactly. <laughs> and then things get weirder after that. But the weirdness is cooler because he's been facing these relatively mundane things. So it's actually, it pricked my conscience because at the end of every like role-playing bestiary or monster compendium ever there's a section on like mundane animals and stuff and Mm -hmm. and i always just skip that section because like who needs stats for like an alligator i don't know i now it's just kind of pricked my uh 
it's kind of gotten to me a little bit. I'm interested in bringing a little bit more mundane into some of my adventures so that the fantastic is more fantastic by comparison. Okay, there's my little spiel, but that's been on my mind. What, what about you guys? What have you been <laughs> reading or doing or thinking? Um, I'm going to have to read some of those Conan stories. I watched John Wick last weekend, which I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a hyper-violent yeah. action movie. It, it the, the opening to that movie hit me harder than the opening to Up as far as like emotional impact, <laughs> which was surprising. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to watch John Wick. I you know, got an afternoon to myself. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm sobbing on the couch because... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because his wife had died and they killed his dog and like, <laughs> um, all this. But yeah, so after that, right, so you have this amazing inciting incident. Um, and then it's just like, you know, murder, so much murder, um, <laughs> after that because he needs to get revenge. Um, but there's so many really clever, like, setups for him going into buildings and working his way through every level, you know, murdering everybody <laughs> that he sees, you know, getting all the, the, the Russian mobsters and stuff. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's really good, really clever. It has me thinking a lot about like, well, how could you have guns um, used in like an action sequence in an interesting way? One of the big things with John Wick, at least, is like he can he can fight hand to hand, but he has this kind of martial arts style that allows him to also use guns. I don't know. It's it's just kind of interesting. It's been a while since I think I've, I've seen an action movie that's really like stopped me and been like, oh, okay, this is like a new take on action. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds cool. I gotta I gotta check that out. It is not one to watch with the kids. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, In, just unless your kids warning. are like child soldiers. Yeah, yeah. Or you want them to be. Later. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about yeah. you, Greg? Anything uh, GMing, GM related on your mind lately? Yeah. So I've been reading this book that I, I'm loath to even admit I'm reading it to anybody, much less on the proverbial air. But uh, here, here goes. Especially after all those digs against authors. Uh, I, I know. I know. Terrible person, objectively. Yeah. Save the cat by jessica brody this is actually save the cat writes a novel is the the actual title now as someone whose psn handle references pale fire uh an uncontested masterwork doesn't exactly follow the quote-unquote save the cat beat sheet anyhow if you're not familiar (laughs) save the cat is a literal formula though uh there are lots and lots of things one could say about how flexible it is and it's not truly formulaic but it's uh it's a formula for writing a satisfying story the original save the cat was a screenplay book uh by blake snyder jessica brody adapted it to novels and uh it contains 15 quote-unquote beats or events in the story that should be happening at prescribed percentages which again for a lot of people i think this is extremely unnerving uh, to talk is this about like uh, is this is like on page 50 this this should it's, happen yeah it's by percentage so it's you know 23 percent in or whatever and they'll say you know 20 to 25 percent this thing should happen uh and then she makes her case for this by explaining to you how every single story you've ever cared about falls into one of these archetypes and it actually does do that and then you just shudder in horror at what a a gullible idiot you are for swallowing all this (laughs) pabulum for so many years and saying oh my god i thought scarface was profound and life-changing it turns out it just saved the cat plot number 14 so that's that's interesting to me uh because as uh, see my backstory for reference, I love freedom in games, which is, of course, as a GM, really the illusion of freedom that you're trying to give people while hoping against hope that they stay on the rails that you've spent maybe hours constructing. So Save the Cat is a lot about uh, sort of archetypes of stories and it even 
drawing on the sort of mythopoeic tradition elucidated by people like Joseph Campbell, etc. And it's about what makes people satisfied to tell a certain story or perhaps in this case live a certain story. But the freedom that I love so much means that I want to give people the opportunity to deviate from that even when it's not in their own best interest uh, as a player or a character. So for me, it's about creating that tension between the idea that they could do anything they want to and then still steering them toward a sort of evolutionary trajectory that's going to come out as a satisfying story when they're done, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. Yeah, because I think it, as, a, as a player, right, you do want that kind of satisfying story that you can tell later. And if there's a bunch of ways to tell those satisfying stories, like why wouldn't you give that as an option? Exactly. But to, I'm, I'm almost done, I promise. Okay. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, to reference Pulp Fiction, because I am a child of the 90s, so I uh, can't help it. So Jules and Vince are in the car, and the gun goes off. No spoilers. And they kill this other guy by accident. That is actually a spoiler. That's and a uh, spoiler, yeah. it's a big spoiler, in fact. <laughs> it's okay. Retroactive spoiler warnings still count. Yeah, yeah, yeah and you could bleep that part out if you movie. want. But that, of course, is part of a, a plot. It's contrived. But it feels insane and fresh and totally unexpected when it happens but of course from an overarching standpoint it's still part of the evolution of the entire thing right and so that's exactly that is a perfectly iconic D&D scene is something goes completely upside down and before you know it you have to sort of sculpt the story around it in real time if you're if you're telling a story driven campaign if it's just a dungeon crawl obviously it doesn't really matter but something gets lit on fire somebody explodes a slime is now in somebody's left lung and you know they have seconds to live i like that kind of stuff uh, but save the cat has really got me thinking about being intentional in that way oh that sounds really fascinating yeah thanks for sharing um, well, we should get into the the meat of the podcast, I think. Um, otherwise, we'll just continue to talk about novels and things. So, sure. Yeah. So if you want to, what we're going to have you do is roll on our table of topics, Greg. So if you can pull out a D10, which I hope you have one hand. There's one in my palm. Of, of course, yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this D10? Yeah, sure. Uh, I bought this D10 actually to use with Gloomhaven, which mm-hmm. we won't go on a tangent about because we're being focused. But it's, it's a sort of murky, swirling-looking, blood-red type thing. It looks like chaos embodied in a D10. And in a sense, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, um, so <laughs> we are going to have you roll on that. So I need you to yeah roll okay. uh, your D10, no modifiers, and tell me what number you get. Okay, I'm going to lean down a little bit so you can hear the roll effect. Yes, yeah, please, okay. please, please. Uh, I got four, which is how do you draw a player back in when they're bored or distracted? Uh, which I think is a great topic and kind of dovetails nicely with some of the things I was already monologuing about. I will say for the benefit of those who are listening, we did not fudge that role. This is exactly, (laughs) no, I was actually a seamless segue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what we've learned, I'm um, doing this podcast a couple times, is that we need to start by sort of defining the topic. Uh, we should probably define what we mean by um, bored and distracted. Uh, otherwise, we will quickly tie ourselves into knots trying to figure out what each other's, <laughs> what, what, we're, what we're saying. So, yeah, so Andy, I guess, what, why don't you define this? Okay, well, um, I mean, fortunately, this is, a, this is one of the more straightforward things on our table of topics. Many of them are although we wrote them seem incoherent uh, <laughs> when we review them. But I think the border distracted player, I think every GM has run into this. And this is when you look up from your GMing and you see people stacking dice or uh, checking their phone or maybe flipping through the rule book. I mean, those are the symptoms. But we've all had that sense as GMs, I think, when we're sort of losing the interest and engagement of the players. 
so yeah, I guess I don't know how else to put it exactly, except that this is, I feel like it's probably familiar to most of us. How would you guys clarify this question? I think that's good. I think the, the other sort of nuance I would put on it is um, probably like confused is, is a subset of this as well. Right. So sometimes a player just like has checked out because they're not sure what's going on anymore. You know, so then I think that also then manifests as the phone coming out and dice getting stacked. Yeah. And I suppose we should say, I, I think we're mostly talking here about people who are border distracted in the actual game. Um, I mean, I think there's another topic, which is people that maybe start losing interest in your campaign over time and ways to kind of get them more involved back in the game. But I think why don't today we talk about at the actual gaming table when people's mm-hmm. eyes start to glaze over or they start looking lost. Who has a good anecdote about a time they bored a player to tears? <laughs> uh, I had somebody actually fall asleep during uh, a campaign <laughs> not very long ago. And I mean, you guys can probably tell from my generally manic tempo of interacting in any sense. I, I, I don't normally do that. And so, yeah, it was a sh- it shook me to my core. I, uh, <laughs> and I, I think that I went over the top in a couple, uh, sort of unconventional ways that really aided and abetted that situation. So what I had done is gotten these awesome LifeX lights. They're Wi-Fi lights. Maybe you guys have seen them, have them. I don't know. You could, you know, 16 million colors right in your living room. Oh, yeah. Nice. And then I made a custom playlist so that when my intrepid heroes went into the sunken library, I could have actual sort of water effects of blue and green swirling across the ceiling and all this weird sort of ethereal music playing it was awesome okay it was getting sleepy listening to right exactly so so what i thought i was doing is saying you're going into this mystical trove of lore and who knows what kind of unearthly automatons you're going to have to encounter and maybe you'll even confront yourselves or something and what i really did was create a spa for my players yeah. <laughs> to lie down. Oh, by the way, they were playing uh, on couches in the living room. Yeah. yeah, and so one guy is a financial advisor during the day, and so maybe his work already makes him sit still and stare at screens a lot. And I just I put him right out. I was it was over. So um, I don't know what I could have done to rectify that as, as like in the moment, but I think this just says a lot about the actual scene that one is setting metaphorically or literally. Did you, so I'm, I'm guess I'm really curious. How did you wake him up or did you wake him up? Did you just let him take his nap? Uh, I probably exclaimed, dude, are you asleep? <laughs> <laughs> I think his wife was just like Nick and then reached over and hit him, which is something I would have liked to have done, but I probably didn't. And I'm glad that she was there. So yeah. So in other words, listener, Gentle listener, physical violence is probably your best resource. <laughs> that's what I'm but you want to do it through a proxy, because that's what a true yeah. DM does. They're always role-playing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I didn't have this problem when I was young and playing in my parents' basement, because my parents' basement had a hard floor with like a very, very thin carpet on it, and we were all sitting uncomfortably on it so it's literally <laughs> impossible to become comfortable enough mm. to like drift off uh so i guess that's another option make your players really uncomfortable i had a player one time the the rest of the party was discussing sort of their plan of attack on you know some sort of goblin hideout or something and like he was just so bored he was playing pokemon go on his phone and he just like kind of stopped he's like can we like roll some dice or something <laughs> <He was> just <laughs> like 
<laughs> I'm done, done with this. Yeah. So that, that was nice when he used his words to tell me exactly what he wanted. Cause then I could, you know, kind of urge them along to, uh, to make some decisions. Yeah. And I, I know, uh, Andy, you wanted to keep us sort of granularly focused on the actual symptoms and the solutions. And I'm going to immediately go against this one easy request you had. If you'll permit Curse me to you, for Greg. a second. Yes. I can't help but analogize about everything. But if, if you're playing, say, Texas Hold'em and you're on the last card, I, I once asked my friend what he would have done in a said situation. I, I had the situation, blah, blah, blah. I laid it out, everything. And so the guy flips it over. What would you have done? He said, well, I would have never been in that situation. I mean, there's like four decisions leading up to that that I would have never made. So that's just not something I can even understand. And I think <laughs> that guy is pretty cool. He's a good friend. Anyway, uh, that's that's <laughs> largely how I feel about this kind of thing is it's like you're actually looking at the sort of acute pain. It's like that's when your meniscus is coming off your knee. You need to start asking questions when you're getting the weird twinges while you're jogging. And so I, I did a survey amongst my crowd after the sleeping incident and i was just asked him each like what's your main reason for coming here do you want to have a beer and have a good time do you love the idea of living another life do you love tactical combat are you into exploring ideas those are the only ones i could think of off the top of my head it was awesome because everyone picked something different meaning that every single campaign has to be an amazing bullseye between four <laughs> totally different axes yeah yeah but at least then, then i know did anybody pick a psychedelic light show <laughs> Oddly, no one did. That didn't stop me from doing it again. No, it, it, it did. So, Greg, then I have to ask, do you feel like you are responsible? I'm, again, just going totally off topic. Do you feel like you are responsible for everybody getting their needs met by that D&D game? Yeah, I, I think a Nabokov versus James Joyce analogy that I've heard, this, I'm just going to make such a literate readership out of your podcast yet, is that James <laughs> Joyce is uh, yelling as you come into his living room that, uh, hey, whiskey's in there if you want it and then Nabokov is like laying out his finest wine and saying come in come in and showing you everything all his curios he's bringing them out I definitely tend toward the second sort of persona as a DM I feel like I'm a fun concierge it's like hey mm -hmm. I want you to have fun that's ultimately that's my main purpose now I think there are many venues even in the world of things like gaming or sports or other recreation where Making somebody beat their head against a brick wall is actually valuable. I think that it's possible to grow. But I don't think that for, for my campaigns, I like to be more like the carnival trickster slash David Letterman slash the Kool-Aid man busting through the wall. Like, I just want to make people happy and, and entertain them. So and, and still keep a fair and fun game going. So, yeah, I think it's my fault if they're not entertained for the most part is, is the case. Do you guys find that certain in-game activities are more likely to space players out than others? Like, does this always happen during combat, for instance? I find that it happens most often when there's a, a role-playing moment happening between either two characters or, you know, me playing an NPC in a character. What I've started doing more recently is whenever there's an NPC interaction, trying to give everybody else something to do at the table. So I'm often jumping between sort of like three different points, you know, like three different scenes that are happening at the same time, just to keep people yeah, drawn in and feeling like they're doing something. Cause otherwise you could sit there and spend a half an hour going back and forth as someone's, you know, arguing and bartering over how to buy rope or whatever, Yeah, <laughs> you know, but while that's happening, someone else can be in the tavern asking questions and someone else can be doing some sort of third thing. Um, and as a GM, it's pretty fun, I think, to, to balance the, those different things. Yeah, th this might be kind of a canard, but I think the central aspect of all storytelling, even in interactive storytelling, is conflict. So 
Uh, and, and maybe you could argue a secondary one is editing. So if somebody's <laughs> buying, I, I, I used to have a very bad habit of striving for verisimilitude at all costs. And so it's like, yeah, I'm going to describe the inside of this blacksmith shop for kind of a long time. And you're going to listen to my description of the tongs and what have you. Uh, yeah. But I, I realized that uh, people probably don't care unless there's some conflict or I just happen to have an inspired moment where I think of a hilarious blacksmith and then I can entertain people for a minute with that. But otherwise, uh, if the blacksmith throws them a curveball and makes them have to, to work in some way, every scene in a novel or a play or, or a movie or anything should be what uh, is in dramaturgy called a French scene where there is some t tiny trajectory where there are opposing aims and somebody gets what they want or changes or something. If you don't have that, then just cut the scene. So it's like, hey, did <laughs> yeah. they have a great sword in there? Yep, totally. It was 20 gold. It's a very expensive shop. And if they want to contest that, suddenly now you have a scene with your conflict. So it's just conflict and editing or how I keep people entertained, which I think I'm pretty good at now post-spa. <laughs> <laughs> post the incident. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that's, it's interesting you say that. I, I don't think I would have put it quite so eloquently, but one thing I have I've gotten a little bit better at doing over the years is identifying... What scenes don't have many meaningful opportunities for the players to enact a change or to uh, make a meaningful decision and just getting better about summarizing those, quickly skimming over those scenes and just telling them how it played out rather than force them to go through a tedious conversation just like you say, for the sake of uh, for of realism or, or believability. So I'm a little bit better at, for instance, if, if they have a, a mission briefing uh, that really does not give them uh, many opportunities for action or decision making. I'm better now at just saying, "Okay, you got your briefing, and here's what he said, and here's the info you need. Let's just let's just get going." Whereas I think in the past I would have been like, "Okay, welcome, thank you for you know, <laughs> thank you for reporting to my office," like, and you know, force the big role playing uh, scene that yeah. is asking for people to check out. And, and I would say the distinction between showing and telling that's so classic in, in the narrative arts is very useful. And if you just kind of fly by the seat of your pants, I think one will intuit workable solutions. But if you make it an instinct to actually start thinking consciously, I am showing, I am telling. I, like, I can say, oh, I went into the police station and I got into this long, bizarre, bureaucratic sort of struggle with the person at the front desk. And then she ended it by saying, son... I've never seen somebody more worthless in my life. Get out of here. And it's like, whoa, I've just gone from telling straight into showing. Now we're in real time. We're having dialogue. And so we've just missed all of the really, we're using quote, quote unquote free indirect dialogue, right? If you're firing on all cylinders, you'll do that flawlessly. Most of the time, players will interrupt you and have their own designs. And like, well, can I pickpocket them? No, she's behind a glass window. What's wrong <laughs> yes, with you? Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but that's, that's what one strives for is that kind of pace between showing and telling where you're, where you're juggling each perfectly, you know? Have you, um, something that, uh, calls to mind is like running horror games. What I found with like, if you're ever trying to, to get a sense of horror or dread or something at the table is like kind of the, the fewer actual concrete descriptions you give to people, the better, yeah. right? Like you want to, you want to just give the vibe that it's creepy and not like, you know, how big the room is, right? Like, they, totally. you know? <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah, how, yeah, it's, it's dark and you can, you know, taste blood in the air. Yeah. Like that's, that's a good description, you know, not like, okay, the room is 20 by 20 and there's a window <laughs> on the side of it. Yeah. 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 No. For, for sure. I'm a, a big fan uh, from a reading standpoint of the Warhammer novels and uh, okay. 40K. And uh, I think the idea of, of a 
galactic empire that's so bureaucratic and distant that it's impenetrable is awesome. It, it resonates with me for some odd reason. But uh, they recently released a book, uh, Master of Mankind, where the emperor kind of makes his first true appearance at length. And it really, really took something away for me. I'm going to be honest. I just thought the yeah. idea of the emperor was so much more compelling than sort of hearing him talk and his ideas about things directly, right? Oh, yes, because yeah. you can put whatever you want on the emperor. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I have had the same reaction to uh, a lot of the lore surrounding the vampire role-playing game. Are you are you familiar with that? It's kind of a 90s thing, maybe you... I, uh, I am familiar with it for that, for that very reason. I've never actually played it, but yes. Yeah, I always thought that knowing, just being on the, just, uh, being on the fringes of that game and hearing the cool uh, lore and backstory uh, was way more interesting than when it was actually... Than the way it was actually played out in the games uh, I played in, yeah. where it was all this uh, glorious mystery and mystique and horror and uh, gothic drama was uh, reduced down to just very pedestrian interactions <laughs> and, and just very typically role-playing interactions with uh, with enemies and friends. Do you mind if I try to bring it back around? Because I think this is actually mm -hmm. a philosophically central point to our real question. How do you draw a player back in when they're bored or distracted? I, I, <laughs> yeah. I think if, this obviously is going to depend on the sort of person. Some people don't want to do a lot of cognitive work when they're entertaining themselves in whatever way. And, mm -hmm. and obviously in a mixed group, you're just going to have a spectrum of, of that. Trying to shoot a little past where you're comfortable with or where the group is comfortable with, I think is cool. Again, this is from the guy who puts people to sleep, but I think most of the time that's not been the result. I think, like, the reason that you were, Andy, seeming to say that uh, you thought this was such an intriguing prospect, this vampire lore, is really because... Of the amount of involvement and speculation and imagination you needed to use to kind of parse it, right? Like there's a lot of getting your bearings and trying to explore that world by bringing something of yourself to it, really. And I yeah. think that's how intrigue and suspense function on a sort of elemental level is that it's, it's a lot of you in there. And if you're mm -hmm. invested in a conflict, I mean, people go to movies all the time to watch other people interact. So if I'm watching a player in a DM or two players interact in a way that's compelling, I will be very invested i'm not going to be bored or distracted that's just probably the minority of of interactions in a typical session but I, I think the more that you can keep your players on the off foot or just keep them a little off balance a little disoriented choose to obscure some things and put some things behind the fog and never quite give them the satisfaction of fully figuring things out it's like that's the story kernel that's actually going to drive them forward i think when do you do you ever give them a resolution though uh, probably not as much as they'd like, but, but that's because I think people, they crave that, but I think the actual feeling of an info dump, uh, is always bad. Nobody ever really enjoys it. And so just leaving something just around the next bend all the time is, uh, maybe an obnoxious trait as a DM, but I think it's a great <laughs> way to keep people coming back for more. I mean, if you look at how a serial drama works, they don't tell you everything even sometimes by the end of the season, right? It's it, They're still setting up season two. So that's the way I try to, to do it. Yeah, I've been thinking recently about like how you wrap up a campaign. I think it's fascinating because right? there is just sort of, you can continue to sort of put that shadowy figure behind the, the shadowy figure. You just unmask and like, you yeah. know, just continue to have, have bigger and badder, you know, evil people. But like in D&D, in &D, right, you have this... You have this interesting thing that's happening is that your players are leveling up. So there's some, some amount of progression, right? Like, you know, they want to see the next level. They want to see level 20, right. you know, happen and everything. And to do that, you kind of need to continue to have, have stuff that's bigger and, 
more fearsome and more monstrous than what they just faced. But then at the same time, like if you don't have any resolution, right? Like if you've never actually saved the cat, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I think it can be kind of frustrating to a player. So I guess what I like to try to do is, is drop in here and there, you know, like you resolve something, you know, like have a little happy ending, even as the, the other thing is um, going wrong. Yeah. As, as an example, I had uh, a character loot something uh, and it turned out to be an ancient evil of unspecified origin trapped in a gem that had uh, access to her head and, and nobody else could hear. So I was constantly having this sort of like, I am so-and-so, I'm talking to you, sort of dialogue with her that nobody else could hear. That was really fun. So her first order of business is just, is this a threat? And then the next order of business is, okay, who is this? And then the next order is, okay, what does it want? And then maybe he tells you what he wants, but then you realize, oh, maybe he's not being fully honest with me. So now he's an unreliable narrator who's inside my brain trying to give me different objectives than the rest of the people have. So there's just so much richness at play there. And so maybe she gets frustrated and casts the thing into the ocean, at which point she finds out that their life forces are now connected. And so she's going to drown. And before you know it, it's like this person is kind of, hopelessly chained to this thing and she has to figure it out because she's imperiled it's like i'm asleep i'm in a tour bus in costa rica and now i see that we're going 70 on this blind curve at night over a cliff and i'm (laughs) very much awake and so i i think imperiling people in a very real way is always a great reason to get them back into the game yeah imperil them until they put their phones down. yes 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 <laughs> but i agree you don't want to hold out forever about the answer so uh, in other words i i always gave her something concrete to figure out this is this guy's name this is why he's in the gym etc but why does he really want this thing and so i tried to just spool that out as long as i could and then bring a conclusion to that subplot because otherwise it would be unsatisfying so i'm not totally sadistic <laughs> <laughs> that's good <laughs> so i have a a slightly a slightly off question, but I think it's related. And what do you do when you have a group of players who have somewhat contradictory uh, reasons for being at the table? So, uh, Greg, you said you'd pulled your car- your players and they had all kind of given you different answers about what brought them to the table. How do you think about an adventure or an evening's gaming knowing that, okay, uh, Jim really loves tactical combat and Annette really gets bored in combat scenes and but prefers intrigue and role playing and somebody else like something else. Do you guys often play in groups with disparate interests like that? And if so, how how do you keep half the table from getting bored when you're meeting the needs of the other half? I, I think game selection is sort of key there in the sense of just just trying to get people together who have common enough sensibilities is key. That's obviously by necessity, not always an option. I would say um, this is genuinely spoiler free, but there's a a fight that happens between two game of Thrones characters uh, on the show that both are very beloved characters and a couple seasons ago. And I remember thinking like, good God, I don't even know who I want to win, but I realized I actually don't want either one of these people to win because that means the other one's going to get hurt. And I don't want that. I like these people. And I thought, (laughs) but the fight itself was awesome. Right. And I, and I thought, uh, I'm a big Ramsey fan. So I just wanted him to survive. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, no, that's a joke, but I, but I, I thought, okay, this is the perfect marriage of action and, like a truly dramatically motivated action because there's a lot going on here under the hood, but the actual action is also awesome. And that's the sweet spot. I obviously you're not going to hit that all the time, but if you have 
uh, if you're just going on a raid, it's like, hey, there's some goblins. We're going to raid their uh, their camp. That's fine. But what if the goblins have been abducting people from the local village and the people that they've been abducting are somehow tied to whatever your character's raised in Datra is? If they're like, a, if, you know, maybe they're a druid and they're destroying, uh, they're, they're profaning gardens as, as, in addition to abducting children or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Or, or maybe yeah. they're just animal torturers. I don't know. It's kind of dark. I know it's a, a G-rated podcast. But <laughs> the, the point is, uh, by making these goblins a terrifying or terrible outgroup and, and ginning up real spite. Suddenly you've got the people who care about the sort of uh, role-playing and, and the dramatic interactions and stuff. They're married to that tactical layer a little bit more. And so I just think it's a very kind of wishy-washy holistic answer, but I, I really think that just trying to make sure that those things, there's always a reason for fighting, even if the fighting is actually the, the most fun and that's why you're coming to the table, that that way you're satisfying everybody as well as you can. Yeah, I think that that works as long as everybody's okay with sort of the the mechanics as being a fun thing. Yeah, to go through right. So if someone just doesn't want to be playing D anD D, there's there's nothing you can do if you're playing D anD D. Yeah, <laughs> you know, at the table. And I've definitely I feel like I've had players who've dropped off where it's like, oh, they clearly didn't actually want to play the, the game that we were playing. Yeah, and I think that's okay, right? You you almost have to define. If you can define what you think the game is and you can um, articulate that clearly to the people that might be playing, um, I think that goes a long way to just like setting expectations. Yeah. I think that there's a lot to be said. Well, not maybe not a lot to be said, but something <laughs> to be said about, you know, just learning from players getting bored. I don't think that I don't think that you will ever be able to run a game that doesn't have slow points for somebody um, where somebody's eyes don't start glazing over at some point and I, I think I wouldn't want, uh, you know, GMs to feel pressure to be responding every time a player drifts off a little bit. I find it that when I notice players drifting off, I usually don't try to um, do anything too crazy in the moment to snap their attention back. But I do, I take that as a cue of like, yeah, this, let's just wrap up what's going on now and maybe take a quick break and try and re and start over a little bit with a new scene or something fresh. You know, I think it's fine to, that to see that, uh, you, you, my players, they weren't into this quite so much today or, or Joe was really, um, starting to check out and just think about that in between sessions and come back to it. Just lessons learned, I guess. I've had a, an experience recently where a player was like clearly distracted, you know, like phone was out. They weren't really totally paying attention. And I tried very directly to draw them back in like asking them questions, like an NPC interacting with them, you know, whatever. And they're just like, it wasn't happening. And it was just like, okay, that's fine. Right. And like next week was totally okay. Right. It was just, he had a bad day. Yeah. Like, or yeah, he just didn't want to totally be there. Yeah. So I, I hear what you're saying. Like, yeah, don't, don't turn everything into a crisis. If a player <laughs> player needs to check their phone for a minute. Yeah. You know, I mean, if it's a, if it's detracting from the fun of everybody else, that's one thing, but you know, Every now and then, you know, sometimes when you're watching a TV show, you kind of feel like pulling out your phone and catching up on email while you pay half attention to the show, you know, out of the corner yeah. of your eye. And it's harder to do that in a role-playing game because you are expected to participate actively, of course. But 
you know, um, I think it's okay to give players the freedom to, um, as long as they're not distracting from fun, again, give them the freedom to get bored every now and then. I think also, like, uh, since my role is to be a pretentious literature citation guy, I think uh, adhering to the sort of Aristotelian conception of storytelling is also useful. I try to play with small groups, for one thing, and then I try to have a unity of space and place and time and all that stuff, because that way I don't have people off on their own, like, well, I want to enter this chest tournament, so I'm going to do that in real time for the next four sessions, and then everybody else is in a dungeon <laughs> or whatever. It's like, I, I try so hard to make sure that people have similar reasons, character-wise, for being in the same place at the same time. And then there is no downtime for them to really hide behind, you know? And, and I don't consider a phone check the worst thing in the world. But yeah, if somebody's flagging too much, I think one big thing is to just not make it about you, you know? It's like, sometimes it's really not. Yeah, but almost all the time it's not, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. which is just a shame. <laughs> I was going to ask real quick, have you guys been bored as players in a game? Yes. And and it, my main reason for being bored, it's just like in life. I just, again, went to Costa Rica, not hypothetical. And there were times that I was not totally riveted by what was happening. But the overall premise that I was on vacation in Costa Rica was still solid. And I think that's okay, but I'm living life 100% of the time. I'm me. If I'm watching two other people... That's that's a whole different thing. So I, I'm usually bored watching people uh, interact when there is nothing at stake. So I think stakes are the key to keeping people's attention even when they're not directly participating. It's like if you, say Chris, have this super objective that nobody else knows that you're actually trying to poison Andy, but just so you can put him into a deathly sleep so you can marry him off to somebody else. Or I don't, I don't know what's happening in this campaign. It's really nuts. But but if I know all that, and if everybody at the table knows that even, every time you guys are talking and you're just sort of like, hey, do you want me to get you some more soup? And he's like, no, I'm good, bro. It's hilarious, right? So it's like, I'm not yeah. going to be bored as long as there are proper dramatic stakes. I feel like I'm hammering this to death. I do have a theater degree, okay? It's it's one of my things. <laughs> well, yeah, I, th I think it's good. So I would say that the times that I've been most bored at the table are usually when I, I have lost sort of like what the conflict is. So I play in a 7C game, which I love but there's a lot of like kind of history and geopolitical stuff that's happening. And my brain is just not wired to, to follow that like in real life, let alone in, in <laughs> fantasy, <laughs> in, in fantasy life. So it takes a lot of effort for me to sort of keep, keep these warring nations you know, straight. Like who's at war with who, like who's this dignitary and why do I care? And that he's making this speech and, and those sorts of things. I enjoy it when I can, when I can catch on to it, but if I get lost, then it's like, okay, I'm, I'm just lost at this point, you know, so there, so I don't know the stakes. So I'm not getting what's happening at the table. Having that um, experience as a player, I think, yeah, as a GM, then I try to make sure that it's, it's very clear what the conflict is at the table. Um, Cause I don't want my players to feel that they're like, well, I don't, I don't know who that name is. Like, why should I care? Why did half the table gasp? And the, you know, their half is like you know, scratching their heads. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. We can take a minute to, to yeah, explain that. Yeah, we all keep circling around that idea of stakes. When I've been bored as a player in games, it is usually because because I've recognized that a certain scene uh, holds no interesting choices for us. Like whether if, mm -hmm. if the combat does, I've noticed that I've I've recognized that the combat doesn't really mean anything. It's not going to contribute to the story or threaten us in any meaningful way. Or this social interaction is going to end with us doing the same thing no matter how it goes so what's the point so yeah i, th I think making sure that there's some sort of stake that uh, all of the players understand 
yeah, it's going to be. You know, now that you say that, you know, thinking about how D and D informs video games and, and vice versa, like video games nowadays do such a good job of constantly having all these different objectives out there. Yeah. So even when the the situation that you're in is is frankly kind of boring, you know, like you're just hunting rabbits or whatever's yeah. <laughs> um, in the game, you're still like building up a meter or there's some sort of statistic thing happening or you're about to unlock an achievement or something like that. So they have all these different little hooks in. You can't really do that in D&D or, you know, in any tabletop games. Um, and I don't think you should either, I should say. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, but it is just kind of... It, it, that just thought struck me. It's like, yeah, you, you never have a moment in a video game, I think, until you've completed it and hundred percent of it where you're not really yeah, moving towards some sort of goal. I did have a, uh, a D and D GM. I was playing in his game, institute this very elaborate system of achievements that our character okay. could earn. <laughs> and it was like a mixture. It was, it was so ambitious and I super respect him for the effort he put into it. But like one person got hyper into it and everybody else was like, like, I don't even know what this is. (laughs) I stand corrected. Yeah, I guess this is to me, this is a very sort of candy versus vitamins, a kind of dichotomy. (laughs) People love candy and they love to progress. They love to just have the security. I'm going to go out and do my job today. I'm going to kill 10 rats. I'm going to level up. It's going to be sweet. They need that on some level. It's a little dopamine drip, but in in a brilliant game like Dark Souls, I know. Uh, but yes. but uh, like you get <laughs> this is now a Dark Souls podcast, yeah, yes, so let's go. Yes, but, <laughs> I, I have been fighting a Dark Souls reference this whole episode. Well, just so you guys know, I just waited right into it. That's what you do when you're old school; is you just don't care what the kids think. Listen, I think that game is brilliant uh, for a reason that I haven't heard other people talk about, but I'm sure they have endlessly on that podcast. But the design decision to make everything about risk and reward, using an item that's finite and it's maybe your last best chance, but you know you're not going to get it back, even if you die and respawn and all that. That's Uh, Like that can be harrowing. And I I think if you're talking about horror, which I think is easily the hardest sort of atmosphere to evoke in a tabletop game with friends. uh, But I think making uh, risk reward at every single level from item usage to should we get into this fight at all? And then what are the actual ethical or moral implications of getting into the fight, which a lot of people aren't going to care about. If you'll permit me a quick anecdote that's very concrete. Yeah. But please. I, uh, so I had this encounter, which is a, a wizard in a tower. So original. I came up with that myself. Uh, <laughs> so the first thing is just like, what's really going on here? There's a village and a lot of the people seem tired and run down and maybe even vaguely mutated. But there's a, a wizard and he seems more or less <laughs> benevolent. And, and so the players uncover slowly that what's going on is this wizard is actually siphoning the life force from everybody in the village. But he's doing it in a really diffused way. So nobody's like dying per se. He's probably shaving a couple years off their lives every couple of years. And so he's doing doing this for god knows why but he's doing this and they have to decide is this evil enough for us to interfere <laughs> it's all it's only kind of evil and obviously i ain't no marxist or nothing but the, the but this is kind this is kind of a economic allegory of some sort and i'm not even sure what it is but i think that's kind of an interesting decision should we even fight him and then the next question is if we fight him are all these people going to basically end up being mindless drones that we're going to kill anyway because he's a wizard they seem like they're maybe kind of under his control so maybe that's just kind of like pointless to even start the fight at all and then of course there's a big question he's a wizard will we win the fight probably not and if we start this fight because 
because he's not hostile. Should we, uh, from a tactical perspective, should we start it inside his tower? Do we want to mount a thing from the village? Do we want to try to rally the villagers to go take out the wizard in this sort of revolutionary moment? So there are choices built into every layer of this encounter. My boring players might be like, well, this isn't our problem. Let's just move on. And then I'm like, but you guys have thought so hard about this. Don't you want to come back? <laughs> yes, but at no. least there's there's risk and reward and, and sincere uh, opportunities to make the wrong, quote unquote, decision on almost every level of that scenario, tactically and ethically and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, that's just kind of a brag anecdote because I think it's cool. <laughs> but No, it's a good, good good scenario. I can't believe you went with evil wizard. I mean, I was like, <laughs> well, maybe he's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need to release your own role playing game, Evil Wizard in a Tower. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's a good title if it's not already yeah. taken. I would, I would buy that module. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, I think we should uh, probably move towards wrapping it up. The last thing we do on the show is we invite our guest to replace the topic that we just discussed on our table of topics with a new one. Greg, do you have a new topic in mind that you'd like to seed the table with? I do, as long as it's not redundant. I'm scanning the extant topics and i don't think it is this is like building a university in my name that i'll never attend it's very sad because i would love to talk about this but someone else will and you know that's okay i want to talk about randomness and i want to hear about how people weave randomness obviously there's you know there are the dice but uh, as a dm i often integrated tons of random tables just so i had a fun random experience trying to think on my feet i like to have staves that open a portal where something random on a d100 comes out that kind of thing then we just have to deal with it it's great so uh, i just want to hear about how people deal with uncertainty and randomness as as gms yeah that's fantastic all right we will add it to the table Uh, i'm shocked that it wasn't already on the table in some fashion so (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. i'm kind of basic i was like is that is that on there (laughs) this is why we like having guests on because our 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 blind spots are many so (laughs) beholder joke <laughs> um so i guess before we let you go do you have anything that you want to plug i mean are you what are your podcasts still going you know do you have any other projects out I there i plan to pick up quill or be quilled uh again soon but no i i focus most of my creative time on writing actually so i uh i would love to plug something that is uh recently published but that's that doesn't exist so no i i appreciate the opportunity okay. though you're not a local author, though, are you? I, I am not. No, I am. I don't exist in any particular place. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like not all, all your novels are based on like small town Michigan. Yeah. Right. No. No. I'm basically I'm like a quantum author. I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for coming on. This was really great. We'll, we'll have to have you back on sometime. Maybe you can even roll, roll your topic. Yeah, I would love that. I thought it was super fun. Yeah, that that can sound like a threat or an invitation, depending. on yeah <laughs> if you don't behave we're gonna have to have you back <laughs> yeah. on yes well thanks a lot guys yeah well, thanks Greg, for coming on um i've been chris salzman i've been andy Rao. remember if your players are having fun you're a great gm 